0: You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about, actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Hills Location, Location, Location Australia.
1: And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach.
0: And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property.
1: Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp, and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is generally in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking.
0: In this digital age, there is so much data available to us and today we'd like to understand a bit more about what the experts see as important to help us put it all into context how many layers of data should we be interrogating? And can any information be viewed in isolation? In this episode, we pick the brains of Cameron Kusha, CoreLogic's Head of Research for Australia and one of the leading commentators nationally on housing market conditions and trends. Cameron utilises CoreLogic's vast array of housing data as well as publicly available data, along with economic and demographic trends, to provide in-depth analysis of residential property market trends throughout the country. He's regularly quoted in the media and is sought after presenter for consumers, the finance, development and valuation industries. Now, Cameron is responsible for the day-to-day output of CoreLogic's Australian Residential Research Team and is the author of his regular reports, one of which you will have heard me refer to many times, my personal favourite, the pain and gain report. And we'll explore that a bit today. Thank you so much for joining us, Cameron.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank you, Cameron. Good to actually to meet you. So that's, that's always uh, interesting when you see from the telly to person, but, um, you know, we do love CoreLogic and we do love your pain and gain report. Um, and I think the CoreLogic are pretty much the leader in, you know, big property data. I've got probably the best database out there, but what are some of the things that, you know, your little secret tips, I mean, I'm a member of CoreLogic, I get, I've got your app. What are the things and data of property that you think are very good indicators just to look out for and the things that you go to first when you think about is a property a good investment?
2: Yeah, I think there's lots of things to look at, but I think, I think the key ones, are, you know, we don't, we can't really be led by what's, uh, happened historically, that's not an indicator of what we're going to see in the future. So I think whenever I'm looking at purchasing a property, I, I try and find out as much as I can about the area that I'm buying that property in, um. I think if you're, if you're buying an apartment, for example, who the developer was, what their history is, um, you know, what their track record of delivering, uh, delivering prop, uh, product is. Um, but for me, I think that the main thing is just getting out and exploring the area that you're actually going to go and buy a property in, you know, it, it's mm. all well and good to, um, you know, think that the numbers stack up and it looks like a great investment, but oftentimes these things are too good to be true. So you need to, actually, and I think, <laughs> I think you also have to consider, in the worst circumstance, if you if everything was to go wrong and you were to only be left with this one investment property that you're buying, for example, would you feel comfortable actually living in that property? And for mm-hmm. me, I think that's always an important
1: consideration when you're looking to purchase. I think it's a really good advice. Actually, <laughs> you've
0: got it here. You've got a data expert saying, "Get out there and have a look."
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's um, you know, it's not what a real estate agent will probably do. sometimes. Real estate agents hope you don't go look at it, yeah. um, <laughs> because um, you know, the pictures. You know, it can tell, you know, a completely different story until you rock up and then you rock up and then you see the neighbour's house and then you see, you know, where it's located and then it's on a, you know, not a, a busier road than you thought and the rooms aren't as big as you thought. and the, So I think you, 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 there's no point looking at data if you're not going to go and get on the ground experience. I think that's really good advice for everyone out there.
0: You, you actually, I mean, you've been sort of in the game for over 15 years now, right? And um, you just mentioned that history isn't necessarily the best predictor of the future. So what are some of the things that really irritate you when you're reading commentary about the property market?
2: Oh, my biggest irritant is probably the, the, the common meme that, you know, property prices double every seven to 10 years. You know, they did for a 20-, 20, 25-year period. Uh, but if we look at the market now, uh, not one capital city has doubled in price over the past decade. So, mm. uh, you know, that, there was a time where that happened. Um, if you look at a market like Perth, for example, it's actually gone backwards over the past 10 years. If you look at a market like Brisbane, it's grown about 12% over the past decade. Sydney Mm. and Melbourne have done much better than that. But um, certainly there's areas where property prices will double every seven to 10 years or Mm. or have in the past, but I don't think that's a reflection of what we're going to see in the future. And that's, that's one of those common misconceptions that I find a bit annoying.
0: Yeah, I find that annoying too, for a slightly different reason. I think I find it annoying because it comes down to the property itself, you know, so the entire every single property in Sydney wouldn't do the same thing if, if every single property went well or if the Sydney median price went up eighty-nine percent, every single property in Sydney did not go up eighty-nine percent. Yeah.
1: Mm. And I think a lot of people love to do that because they say, well, they'll look at regional areas and they'll say, Well, regional areas might have done quite well, and then they'll compare it to Sydney and they'll say, Well, hasn't Sydney hasn't beaten it that by that much. Well well, the <laughs> Sydney generally hasn't, but then certain pockets within Sydney and maybe the houses in these areas have gone up, you know, 150% over that period. But I think you're 100% right. Like, that's one of the myths that, you know, a lot of people say, and it's the story and belief that they tell themselves and that society has told them, and they just regurgitate it out like it's gospel. But really, there's nothing found, and there's even recent research doesn't even prove it.
2: No, that's exactly right. And I think your point is a really good one. You know, certain it's all about the actual individual property, it's not about the broad trends. And I think oftentimes, by the time you see the data starting to turn positive, and then you, um, get the confidence to go and buy a property, generally it's too late. You want to be able to go and pick that market before it started to see that, that price growth, because firstly, it's not going to show up in the data for a little while, Mm. then it's going to take you a while to get your eggs in the basket. And then, you know, you've missed out on all that growth you could have potentially already seen and, uh, and you're paying much more than you would have maybe a year and a half ago.
0: So on that, what are Mm. your thoughts on Hobart? Yeah,
2: look funny story about Hobart. I, I said to my wife about five years ago, I said, I reckon that Hobart's going to have a bit of a run. I never actually went and bought anything there. I wish I, I had. Mm. Um, do you say things like
1: that to your wife a lot?
2: I I, I do at times. <laughs> I, I, have been, I have been known to sometimes pick the housing market turn before, uh, before it actually happens. Um, and she says, well, why don't we buy a property? And, you know, then that becomes a bigger argument that we didn't yeah. do that. Um, but, <laughs> but in terms of Hobart, I mean, it was really affordable. You've got the tourism story there, you know, that they, they've got the, uh, you know, big, uh, festivals going on. Now the art gallery down there is very popular. The Chinese tourism story is very strong. Um, But if we look at Hobart now, the big driver of Hobart was that it was so affordable. Mm. Mm. Uh, It's no longer the case. I mean, based on a median uh, dwelling value, it's more expensive than Perth, it's more expensive than Adelaide, it's more expensive than Darwin now. So it doesn't have that same appeal. And what we're actually finding in Tasmania is it's the regional markets now that are starting to see the growth. So all that growth was in Hobart. People have been priced out of Hobart, so they're now looking to Devonport uh, down towards Bruny Island, south of uh, Hobart, uh, the, the west coast, um, some of these areas are seeing quite strong growth. Um, but again, the challenge is always outside of Sydney and Melbourne, unfortunately, is just employment and, uh, and career prospects for people if they're, if
1: they're going to live in those markets. It's funny you say that because once it's, you're right, like it's, it, while it's, you know, if you think that's driving you there is affordability. It's like a thing of being on sale, I'll buy there while it's on sale, but as soon as it's full price, I'm no longer going to buy there. I'm going to go buy somewhere else and it runs out of steam pretty quick. And that's what I think's happened, right? So if, if you look at the price of the really aspiring places in Hobart, well, you know, it was 600 grand to live on the water in a beautiful place. Now that's 800 or 900. I don't want to buy there anymore. There's other better places I can get value for money. So, you know, you've got to be very careful when you buy in an area that is the only reason people want to live there is because it's affordable because at some point, it might not longer be affordable and then you lose all those
2: buyers. That's right. And I think that's what we're starting to see in Hobart. I mean, it's Mm. very early days in our data, but we have seen um, two consecutive months where values have fallen and they've actually fallen fairly rapidly over the past Mm. two months as well. I think in two months it's down about one and a half percent, which again, very early in the data, but that's actually a faster fall than we saw in Sydney and Melbourne when those markets started Mm. to turn.
0: And that possibly could be. Because of the type of buyer that was buying there, and and their sort of blow-ins rather than yep. you know locals, would that be fair?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's certainly the case. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of businesses are now accepting of people not maybe being in the Sydney or Melbourne head office every day of the week. So mm. that does open up Hobart as an option. You know, mm. if you've got a job in Melbourne, you can commute to Melbourne two or three days a week, and then you can work from home. And I think people are attracted to that lifestyle. But as you say, it's probably not so much locals that have been driving that. I mean, if we look at the first home buy numbers, it's a similar story in South Australia, they're both very low for Tasmania and South Australia. And ultimately the people that would buy a first home in Hobart or, or South Australia end up leaving for work after they graduate university and, and end up buying their first home, probably in Sydney or Melbourne. The brain drain. Exactly.
1: Yeah. You said about data, it takes a while to hit, you know, like if something happens in the share market today or some, you know, bad report comes out, you know, it was a financial advice, a bad news art- paper <laughs> yeah. article came out yesterday, share price dropped 7%, you know, pretty much instantaneously. It doesn't really happen in the property market. How long does it take, do you think, till what's happening today is actually starting to represent quality in the data?
2: Yeah. I, I, the challenge with the housing market obviously is that it's not a liquid asset like mm. uh, like shares are. So mm. I think... You know, there's, there's been all the talk that post-election uh, there's been a bit of a rebound yep. in demand, auction clearance rates have jumped. So auction clearance rates do indicate it fairly quickly. But in terms of our uh, our indices, I think it, it probably takes around four to six weeks to start seeing it in the data. And mm. if we actually look at that, our daily index at the moment, it is starting to show some more positive growth. And, and obviously, the election now was about four weeks ago, so mm-hmm. that it's only just starting to show up in the figures.
1: But though. interesting, a daily index on the property market—I'm sure people have wanted that for centuries. Um, oh,
0: what a dangerous but, thing! Um, in many ways,
1: <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a sugar hit. I've had clients send it to me as well. Like, you know, this is what's happening. You know, this this daily index has gone up. What do you think? And how is that actually? How do? Can you explain to our listeners just how you create that, and how much? Uh, how much should they read into it?
2: Yeah, so the, it's a hedonic model, which is different from most of the models you see uh, out there in the that other providers do or what we've done in the past. And the premise behind a hedonic model is basically that instead of using the transactions that take place and just looking at those transactions to measure the market, what you do is you look at those transactions and you say, okay, based on those transactions and the attributes of that transaction, so if it's a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house or whatever... What would other three bedroom, two bedroom, two bathroom houses in this area transact for today, given the market conditions? So instead of just looking at the five to seven percent of properties that actually sell over a given year, you're using that information to revalue every single property in the market every single day. So that's the theory behind it. Um, it's, you know, complicated, mathematic formulas, you know, Mm. built by PhDs and, and this type of thing. Um in terms of the in terms of the actual looking I mean I don't even follow the index every single day. Yep. What what I think the value is is intra month b- between when we report our our figures you can have a look at if there are turning points in the market um you know over the last four or five months we have been seeing the rate of decline in Sydney and Melbourne steady, steadily slowing. So you can see of you know the evidence of that during the month is that trend continuing and at the moment it certainly is. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't be looking at it day to day. Um, you know, movements day to day can be a little bit volatile.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and just because it jumped today or, or yesterday and today doesn't mean that it might not f- pull back a little bit the, the following day. And we've never been, we've never had the visibility of this volatility in the housing market before. So No, yeah.
0: it's interesting you say that, that auction clearance rates are a bit of a lead indicator. Um, but even before that is really numbers through open houses, isn't it? And, and then people applying for loans and there's a lot of lead indicators that maybe aren't all gathered in in one sort of data data house. Um, so this hedonic thing, okay. So just let me get this clear. So basically, you're looking at what has sold, and you're saying, well, this is the this is basically the stock that exists in the whole of Australia, mm. and, and then you're applying those sales to the knowledge of what actually exists, and saying, you know, there's there's hundred three bedroom homes like that in that suburb, and so therefore that suburb is worth X for argument's sake. That's sort of what what it goes. Yeah, basically.
2: I mean, you do the, the comparison, mm. you know, this it's, it's valuers get angry if I say this, but it's, it's, it's it's like a, it's like a robot doing <laughs> yeah, a yeah. evaluation. Mm. but you do say, okay, well, this, this property sold for mm. X amount here. This property here has got the same attributes, mm. but the land size is a little bit larger. It's in a, in a little bit le- a better location. Yep. It's on a quieter street. So you then apply some, you know, escalation of that for the better location. So it's all, it's all very complex uh, mathematical equations behind it. It
1: it, makes sense though, because if you've got a hundred properties and you're saying, you know, five to five or seven of them are selling each year, well, you're forgetting the other 95 that don't sell. And if those five or seven, um, you know, you can't just say that they're going to be a true reflection on the whole suburb because, you know, there's so many sub markets within a, you know, a suburb that the three bedroom market could could be going up in price. The six bedroom market could be going down. The apartments could be up and down. So I think you've got to then, uh, you know, cut that data and then reflect it basically what that suburbs, you know, as a whole, because you can very easily move a median, you know, if more apartments sell than houses sell. And I think that's what I've seen at the moment. Um, have you seen it that, you know, a lot of people are suggesting that apartments haven't have got gone down less in value than houses. <laughs> and, you know, that's because we've built a lot of new apartments and that's pushing out a lot of medians.
2: Yeah, the, the apartment story is an interesting one, and we were actually kind of talking about this internally the other day because even our index is not showing as big of a fall for the apartment market mm. as the the, the uh, detached housing market. And one of the reasons for that is when we were building the index, we were actually having the discussion, you know, when someone's buying an apartment, are they buying it at today's price or are they buying it at the price at which the apartment was com- is going to be completed? And we never really came to a consensus as, and we you know we talked to other people externally and everyone seemed to have a very different opinion so what we actually do with our <laughs> index and i think we we look now at what's happened in the apartment market and we know they were Pretty paying bloody obvious. they were paying yeah, the yeah. prices at that <laughs> yeah. date but the way mm. the index has been constructed is if if you've got a property that has a settlement period of more than uh, a year mm. we actually exclude it from the index until such time as we get a sale to match it with uh, so you, you won't right. usually get that initial sale from the developer, then you'll use that next sale to start measuring, uh, the performance of the market. So we actually think there's a bit of a lagged effect and we know, you know, there was a story earlier this week that there was a hundred settlements that didn't go ahead in, uh, in a Melbourne tower. Uh, we know from talking to a, a lot of developers and a lot of banks out there, there are a lot mm. of concerns around the high rise apartment market. So we actually think that even if, even though the broader market is starting to recover, the, the recovery somewhat. Don't be surprised to see uh, a weakening of that apartment market over the next few years.
0: And can you separate the data? Because this is the problem, I guess, you've got existing and you've got as yet unbuilt. You know, you've got greenfields yeah. and you've got existing. And and they are, they do behave very differently.
2: They do, and and the challenge is actually getting to the point where you can separate that data. So there's some fuzzy logic you can build around that, but it's very hard to actually mm. build the 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 logic into any data to say mm. this is definitely a brand new property, yeah, and this is definitely because you know some properties may not. Our data is generally pretty good in New South Wales, Victoria, and Queensland from about 1980 onwards, but there could be properties that have sat in the same family for the last mm. 70 years. So. Now you apply that same logic to it. You could have some grand estate mm. that's that's been in this family for hundreds of years that's selling, and you're now considering that a new property because you've never seen it transact before. So that's definitely one of the challenges in oh, the market. Yeah,
0: interesting. And yeah. I don't, look, I know. I mean, we use Apidata, Data, which is still caught Upi Data professional, isn't it? It so, is. Yeah. Um, and you've got those older older properties that are sitting in there as a zero purchase price. at, yeah. You know, in I think it's a standard 1930 or something. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> first yeah. of the first 1930. <laughs> All these properties are transacted at zero dollars, but well, probably wouldn't be about a dollar $1. anyway,
1: wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like it's. Um, well, it was in places. pounds
2: anyway, so yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah.
1: But I mean, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of the medians, um, you know, if there's a, you know, lots of new stock or new apartments coming into the market, and those apartments are higher priced than, you know, and a big portion of those are selling. Can it really move a median in a suburb dramatically? And you know, a lot of these, you know, best suburbs or apartments are going up. You've got to really care be careful what's actually represented in that market.
2: That's right. I mean, we uh, you know, it can be very much biased particularly on low volume. So one year you can get a lot of lower quality stock transacting in a market. Yeah. Then the next year you can get a lot of high quality stock transacting in the market and in the medium shows really strong growth, mm. but the reality is you've just had the compositional change of what's actually sold. So again, that's why we we're trying to move away from using median prices and move towards this hedonic index, even at lower uh, lower geographic levels. Yeah. Now, even that does get very volatile at a suburb and, mm. and postcode level, but you can use some of the standard geographies. An SA2 region, for example, is the size of a couple of suburbs, mm. and that can be very representative of what's happening in the market. That's a, a lot more
1: reliable than just using a median price. Yeah, so I guess for our listeners, is just when you are reading median growth stories, et cetera, just always take them with a big grain of salt because you know there's usually other stories behind, sometimes affecting that story.
0: Those top ten lists generally are median, right? That's yeah. right. Generally, <laughs> generally median,
2: median anything, median time on market, median price, median rent. Um, so yeah, you just got to take them with a little bit of a grain of salt. Mm. Um, but obviously, from a media perspective, they're great stories. <laughs> they they love the top lists of this is the best performing well, suburb, this, this the is worst the worst performing. You know, sub. do you
0: think the media rewards really simplistic? data in press releases?
2: Yeah, it's a. I mean, I, I love the media. I do a lot of work with them, so <laughs> be careful what I say. But I, I, I do find that, you know, so I, I'll often write a story and I think it's a great story and the media is not interested in it at all. Because it's it, a little bit
0: intelligent. Yeah. It oh. might require a bit of thought. No,
2: no, no comment there. But, you know, then then you get the, uh, you, you'll chuck together something like the five best performing suburbs in each mm. capital city and that will get
0: so much oh, media coverage. No. Just, Do you have
1: to feed the beast, or is, it's yeah. a sugar hit? It's yeah. a sugar hit,
0: and it's you know, and, and consumers feed it, or be, beg it. You know, give me, give me, give me mm. more. I want to yep. know where to invest, and it's like that is not where to invest. And <laughs> that's
2: and that's why I said at the start, mm. you know, the, the data can lead you to the right area to start looking at, mm. but nothing beats actually getting out there mm. on the ground and, and walking the path and and doing your own hands-on first first-person research.
1: Did you find that really hard though, as, as someone who looks at a big picture all the time? And you understand the micro, to the macro story, you find it very hard that, you know, you can't really go into that detail because a lot of the mass media want the macro story. They don't want the micro stories.
2: Yeah. It's it's a real tough story because, you know, we are an, a, a national company. So when we're yeah. talking to the media, we try and keep it national. Mm. But as you say, the, the micro stories are, are very different. You know, I get messages all the time. I'm sick of reading about Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. tell me, tell me about Tamworth and it's like, well, realistically, 40% of the population live in Sydney and Melbourne. So that's yeah. why you hear so much about Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. And I don't know, it's probably less than
1: 1% of the population yeah. live in Tamworth. So might well, be Joyce. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he told us everyone should move to Tamworth. It's, apparently that's if you want a house you just and a job, move to Certainly Tamworth. Certainly
0: push prices up, <laughs> wouldn't it?
1: <laughs> um, you mentioned something that really interesting. Um, and I was just looking online last, last night around some of your reports. You've done a settlement risk report. You know, how big are you seeing this as an issue? Because you've got access to, you know, valuation data and a lot of banks use your software, um, you know, and I use it to, you know, order customers' valuations for for loans and things like that. And I've seen, even though I do very little in the -the off-the-plan space um, and unfortunately when I do do it, I I do it because I really want to help someone who's usually in a bit of a pickle. Um, How are you seeing the settlement risk and how are you seeing – Playing out in your data?
2: Yeah, we're we're definitely seeing the risk escalate at the moment. So the the latest data we have showed that about sixty percent of off the plan apartment valuations came in below the contract price in Sydney.
0: Oh, that's growing. Uh, yeah.
2: In Melbourne, in how, over how long time frame? Well, we measure that each month. So in the, the last month, yeah. So the, oh, it, it has been trending a lot higher. Uh, from memory, I think Melbourne was about forty five or fifty percent. Uh, Brisbane and Perth have been elevated for some time. They're actually now starting to trend a little bit lower. But when you look at what's happening in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, a lot of people bought these properties three or four years ago, thought that it was going to be worth more. Uh, the markets turned against them. Um, there, as I said, there was the story the other day in the AFR about yep. um, you know a hundred people either defaulting or walking away from their uh, their ten percent deposit, presumably on uh, on properties down in Melbourne. We think it's a big risk, particularly because when you look at New South Wales and Victoria, the number of units under construction is only just starting to roll over. Yep. So you've had unprecedented levels of construction. Mm. It's still way above the long-term average level. The market's turned against it. Yes, the market might be improving a little bit, but, you know, the market's down 15% from where it was at its peak. So if you've put down a 10% deposit, that's that's more than wiped Enough. out already. Mm. So we do think it's a big risk and, and, and we are very cautious about that high-rise apartment market. We know talking to our finance customers and that, it's certainly something that they're very focused on the risk around this. And I think the challenge with supply is that when you get to a point in the market you need it, you can't create it quickly enough. Yep. But then when you don't need it, you can't turn it off quickly enough either. Yep. And we're going to have an overhang for mm. the next few years. Um, you know, developers will pull back on their their construction and, Over time, that's probably going to lead to a a period where we actually do need a lot more housing again Mm. and we're not going to be able to get it to the market quickly enough and that is going to lead to some price growth.
0: Is there any data around about the composition of that new stock? Like as in what is it, you know, two-bedroom apartments and what is really needed in terms of supply? Because I guess I've... Anecdotally, I've seen that, you know, look, look at Brisbane, for instance. Brisbane is not a city that people are used to living in apartments. So how many two-bedroom apartments does a city like Brisbane need? Um, who are they being built for? You know, at one period of time, there are obviously a lot of Chinese investors, for instance, a lot of Chinese money coming in. They they buy with different requirements to they, the local investor or, dare I say, at the non-local Australian investor based in other cities yep. <laughs> chasing affordability. Um you know, and so they keep building and they're still building yeah. and they're still offering, you know, three months rent-free and an iPad um, for a 12-month lease. And, and there's all that stuff because, like you say, the lag, they've got to continue finishing off whatever yeah. they started building. um, And then you say the demand for, for housing, but if the demand is not for two-bedroom apartments, it doesn't matter because they've got all these buildings that really nobody wants to live in.
1: But a developers thinking about it not on a macro level, what do we actually need? They're thinking, what can I sell? Of
0: course. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is, <laughs> uh, is there data around there, out there that, that really sort of looks at the difference between what's really required versus what is being built?
2: I don't think there's any real data out there, but I think there's a, a pretty strong acknowledgement that there were too many one- and small two-bedroom apartments that were built. And, and particularly if we are going to densify our cities, you need more apartments that are actually um, the sort of apartments a family could live in. I mm, mean, yeah. I personally, I live in a three-bedroom apartment um, and you know, there's, there's not that many of them. And and the challenge with three and four bedroom apartments typically is they're put at the top of the building and they're a penthouse and they cost a fortune. Yeah. So they they don't, they don't tick the box from an affordability um, perspective. In terms of the overseas story, I think that's, that's an important one as well, because remember that you used to be able to sell a hundred percent of your properties mm. offshore. They've changed that to 50%. So a lot of these projects that are now underway or, or kicking off, they're not going to have the luxury of going and doing the Asian tour to go and find a a buyer if they can't find enough local buyers. So developers are going to have to think a lot harder about what the, what the product's going to be and who's going to be that buyer and who's the local person
1: that's going to Mm. be that buyer.
2: Yeah. Interesting you say
1: that because in the boom, there was apartments that were advertised hundred percent in Chinese, right? Everything Mm. around there, there's no, uh, there's no local advertising. Everything is directly to China or other places, obviously, but you know, there was zero desire to sell it to a single local, because everything you could see, there was nothing marketed to any locals.
2: No, that's right. And, 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 and keep in mind as well, a lot of the developers that have come into the market have been, you know, Thai developers, Malaysian developers, Mm. Chinese. So they've been very much, uh, firstly, probably not as familiar with what local Australian residents want, but they've been building for the people that they have on their database that want to buy properties in Australia. So, um, I think certainly some of those developers are going to face some headwinds going forward.
0: Mm, yeah. I think that, you know, what you're talking about there with the three-bedroom apartments, the four-bedroom apartments, really interesting because we spoke, oh, Chris and I had a conversation just before the whole Opal Tower debacle because I've been talking to an urban de- urban planner who told me about Opal Tower and said, you know, it's an entire complex that had apparently been, as according to him, um, developed with families in mind, you know, three and four bedroom apartments at all levels. And and I don't know, because I've never physically nope. walked in the building or even looked at a plan. But um, and then <laughs> then, all that terrible thing happened. But it was interesting, just the fact that you had one large developer who was actually looking at that. And I'd be very interested to find out how many are starting to go down that path. Or is that really still quite rare? I don't know whether do you...
2: I, I don't really have a good feel for it. Mm. I mean, there are developers out there that have been known for their owner-occupier stock. You know, Mervax always generally yeah. had a bit of a reputation in that area, um, lend lease to some degree as well. But I think the, the challenge that they still come up against is they're seen as a higher quality uh, product, so they yeah. charge that premium. Yeah. And f- for most people, people, a lot of people that look to buy an apartment Some look to buy for an an apartment for lifestyle, but a lot are looking to buy an apartment because they can't afford a house in Mm, the area that they want. So, and, and particularly in Sydney, you see some of the areas where a lot of these apartments have popped up, well. What you're paying for an apartment is pretty similar to what you'd actually pay for a house in that same suburb. Well, that's so, yeah.
0: actually interesting because, and, and do you have any data on this? Because what we're seeing is that downsizers like to downsize in the same suburb in which their, their house is. And if they haven't touched their house, say, for 40 years and it's it sells to a young couple that's going to renovate it or, you know, effectively the changeover cost, there's not much change from, from you know, a house on a big old block of land versus, you know, a new apartment in that area.
2: No, and that that that's the real challenge. And I think that's why we haven't seen this downsizing phenomenon really take off because I think mm. people do the, do the sums and go, well, by the time I pay stamp duty, I, I pay any ta- other taxes that I might have, I go and buy uh, this property. It's not worth it for me to downsize. So, mm. uh, look, I think that, you know, we can talk about the tax system and, and there's a lot of issues there, but I think that uh, there's not really the incentive for people to move out of these homes. And that's why you see. Uh, So many people still living in four and five bedroom homes when their kids have left because it's just too hard to downsize.
1: You made an interesting point there, just a throwaway comment. Around we could talk about the tax system. You know, (laughs) that's um because I think it's going to be these tax system isn't set in stone. I think the last election kind of really you know opened people's eyes up to, especially even me actually around negative gearing um and the changes of that and the impacts on the market because you know I thought common sense you know. Yeah, you know, the government could see the big picture of how it was all kind of coming together, but then when it came to the election, I don't think they could. They could just went and focus on winning votes. What do you think are some of the changes that they could make to the property tax system to potentially create, you know, a more equitable system?
2: Oh, look, I think I think there's a few things that they could possibly do. Firstly, I think stamp duty is a a, a terrible tax that that needs to needs to go. Um, and I think the transition is uh, is really the hard part because you get rid of stamp duty, you need to replace that somehow. Presumably that would be an increase in land tax and not just investors paying land tax, everyone. Um, but you know, if I bought my house a year ago and they're going to make that transition, I don't feel very good about having paid 35, $40,000 in stamp duty a year ago and now having to pay even if it's a thousand dollars a year in land tax. So, Mm. um, the transition period for that is, is, is going
1: to be the difficult part. I know Also for the state government, right? Like they, they don't want to move from a big high up. Model to a long-term like subscription model, yeah. basically. <laughs> um, you know, they make a lot of money up front that they want to spend. Yeah. They they do, but equally, I mean, look at what's happening in New South Wales and Victoria
2: now. They've been they've been swinging rivers of gold from stamp duty revenue, and now the market's turned against them. They're going to have a big hole in mm. their in their in their budgeting. So, um, you know, if you have surety about what tax you're going to get every year. It means you can plan better. You're not at the behest of what happens in the housing market. So I think Mm. that's important. Um, look, I, I didn't think that the opposition's policies around negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount were, were, were good policies. Um, and I think obviously the electorate kind of showed that as well, but I think that we should have a discussion about whether Mm. negative gearing should be, uh, still in existence or if there needs to be some changes and and I'm not adverse to to some potential changes but I think a smarter way is not to say you can get it if you buy brand new properties but you can't get it here I think you need a more holistic approach and say well if if people are are taking too much advantage of negative gearing if we want people to have positively geared investments we should say you can claim losses up to x amount yep. each year across yep. however many properties you want and that's that's the rule for everyone um but I I don't uh, I don't agree that trying to funnel uh, investors who largely buy uh, existing properties rather than brand new properties to go and buy brand new properties, which are generally more expensive, generally smaller in size, I don't think that was ever going to successfully work as much and as they'd hoped. Lose
0: money. Um, and interestingly enough, you you back to data <laughs> because. <laughs> Uh, there was uh, some revelations throughout the electioneering that um, some of the assumptions that the Labor Party had been building their policy on, uh, namely around that proportion of investment dollars spent on new versus established properties, that the, the imports were incorrect. And, and I don't know if you know much about that, but um, the idea they were working on this ninety-three percent was used <laughs> of investment borrowings used to buy exist established property versus seven percent, and they call that a big fail. Yep. Um, and that data source was the ABS. But the big question is, where do the ABS get the data from?
2: Well, the ABS get the data from APRA and they get it from the, the individual banks. Um, but I think this comes back to the to the fact that the government's been defunding the ABS. So if you want quality data, you need to actually spend the money. I mean, we know that as a business, we spend many millions of dollars on acquiring and Uh, capturing data and the ABS captures a lot more data than we do. If, if, if you want to be able to make good decisions about the housing market, about the jobs market, about the economy as a whole, you need to make sure you have the best data. So reducing funding to a body like the ABS is Mm. uh, is not a great way to go about it. I mean, I know that they've got quite old systems and they need to overhaul those systems. Um, I think you also need to employ people that actually understand yes, it's good to have statisticians, but you actually need to get people in there that understand. How, how finance works. So you need to target the right people to be uh, not just collecting that data, but analysing that data and making it available uh, out there to customers.
1: So you, we've talked a bit about the apartment market. Um, another kind of like settlement risk, I guess, is, you know, there's two. There's probably around the, you know, the townhouses and the middle ring kind of, you know, smaller time developers that, you know, sold a townhouse for 1.2 in the boom. Now it's only going to sell for a million. You know, I think that's a lot... Have you seen much data affecting that market um, where, you know, I guess in the inner rings, the middle rings, they're no longer as desirable because there's not this fear of missing out?
2: Yeah, I haven't seen too much data on that, but but certainly that that has an impact as well, you know, someone that's got a large block that's subdivided and built two houses and said, we'll keep one and, and, and we'll sell off the other one. But the, again, markets turned against those people and we know that in property development, particularly if you're not a large developer, margins are typically very narrow and if mm. you're doing this without experience, um, again, when the market turns against you, you can get yourself into some strife. So yeah, I think that there's going to be some heartache in those areas as well. Um, uh, look, I, am I'm, I'm a big advocate of townhouses. I think that they're a product that's not been delivered as much to the market as it should be, because it is that kind of balance. It's not an apartment, it's not a house, but it yeah. sits somewhere in between. It gives you a little bit of land. Um, I, I think it's a very good product, but generally uh councils don't really seem very supportive of that type mm. of product and i think they i mean i i'm in brisbane and they're talking about um you know banning townhouses in most sub, most middle and outer ring suburbs of the brisbane city council even area. the outer ring yeah which is just crazy to me
1: yeah that's because i can understand an in inner ring you know you've got very strong status quo you know nimby mentality that they're trying to protect and you know then the council says well we want to keep our rate players happy or rather up the rates on them rather than more rates, whereas I find in the outer suburbs that, you know, that's usually a little bit more relaxed and the councils just want to increase their rates and they're willing to approve them.
2: Yeah, it's, it, it seems like an, an odd move to me. But, I mean, you hear very similar stories in, in Melbourne. There's a lot of resistance to, to people um, subdividing their properties and putting in townhouses yeah. as well. So,
0: Well, and, I know even some of the council areas in Sydney that, that we deal with and I guess you can do it, but then they force you to do a, a strata subdivision on a lot of two you know, two lot um, mm. uh, development is sort of a bit ridiculous, really. I mean, then they're forced to share insurance. They might even know where their neighbour lives, you know, yeah. because it could be tenanted and then there's privacy and there's a whole bunch of issues around that. Yeah. It That's
2: quite- it. Yeah. So I think councils just need to get a bit more progressive with their views and, and you're always going to have those NIMBYs that don't want change. But I think ultimately when you buy into a suburb, you live in that suburb but you don't own that suburb and you don't have – I believe you don't have the right to say this suburb can't change just (laughs) because I live here.
0: Now, on the townhouses, in terms of data, there is quite a frustration. When we're looking at pricing up a property, we might be looking at a a townhouse and it's like, well, what data do you you use? You can't, apartment data, I think the townhouse data is lumped in with apartment because it's strata, right? That's right. But it doesn't really apply. And then likewise, housing data doesn't apply either in how do people interpret what's available?
2: Unfortunately, it's very difficult and it's a it's a challenge we're trying to um, take on at the moment of actually mm. separating. So you've got houses, you've got units, and then trying to separate it out to say from the unit segment, you've got apartments, you've got townhouses, from the house sector you've got attached houses, detached houses, um, but it's it's very difficult mainly because there's no one standard data source. Mm. So all of our data comes from each of the different state governments and they all produce the data in a different way. And then we're trying to package that up at a national level to say, this is the overview of the housing market. Mm. So it's something we've been trying to do for some time. There's certainly a lot more focus on that now. And and even with townhouses, you've got very different types of townhouses. Yep. As you said, you've got strata townhouses, you've got non-strata ta- townhouses. I mean, on the Gold Coast, we've got um, developments at Sanctuary Cove, which are all freestanding houses but they're all on strata titles, yeah. So based mm. on our rules, that would actually come in as an apartment yeah. when we know it's not. So, so what
0: do you do with it internally?
2: Well, for that we've made an exception right. and, and where we do we make exceptions, but we've just got to build more intelligent systems to be able to... Know to,
0: what to make an exception
1: on. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny, so good that you say that actually because, you know, sometimes clients will say, what do you think of townhouses? And I'm like, well, there's townhouses and there's townhouses. Mm. And, you know, like if you think about 1960s townhouses in premium suburbs... You know you know we had more space, you know, and so they're bigger blocks there's you know usually bigger townhouses they've got more green spaces um you know see, they're I more... reckon
0: it's the opposite a lot of the older townhouses we see are tiny they're like absolute little boxes and um whereas some of the newer developments are actually larger and they're mm-hmm. they're a great uh, alternative for families um because they do have you know a better standard or a higher you know larger accommodation so I mean there's small. Modern ones as well. But that, I mean, certainly we see that in the areas that we buy.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously there's different suburbs and different demographics, but I think a lot of the, you know, I- units, for example, like, a, um, you know, in Melbourne, you know, there's lots of little villa units mm. and, you know, they're actually not bad little investments because they're like, almost like little houses, you yep. know, they're not detached. Yeah. you've got a little garden, etc. So when you're looking at unit data... You've kind of got to say, well, is it a high-rise or is it a medium density, or is it just like a four-block, four, block, yeah. four yep. units in a suburb? And
0: an Art Deco block in Bondi, for argument's sake, is completely different to you know something in Zetland.
1: And that, and mm. I mean, this
2: is all the kind of stuff we're trying to tackle. You know, mm. segregating it by is it a high-rise apartment because yeah. that's very different to a low-rise. Uh, but it's it's one of the challenges with the data. But it's certainly something that we're going to be looking at uh, going forward. And, and and again, one of the reasons why. Yes, the data can guide you, but you need to actually go and do the legwork and, and understand what each property is, why you'd buy it, why yep. you wouldn't buy it.
0: What do you reckon is the most dangerous piece of data or source of data to take in isolation?
2: I, I honestly think it's it's the median price change yeah. over a 12-month period or anything like that, and or even looking at it historically and then going this is what's going to happen in the future. I think those those pieces of data are, are, are very uh, dangerous to look at and just say, oh, well, that market's done very well. I'm going to go and
1: buy that property in yep. that suburb. Because all, all all properties aren't created equal. No. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think, um, like, you know, you see those top suburbs and, you know, you've, everyone, someone will say, oh, what's a good suburb to invest in? It's like, well, yeah, it, well, the suburbs is the easy part. You know, you can pick a good suburb because it's got all the livability factors, but it's what property within that suburb is really what matters. That's the, the second element there. You know, the suburbs only going to drive so much, it's then within that suburb, within that suburb, within that suburb. And even within suburbs, particularly big suburbs, you need to be close to the amenity that drives the the
2: value (laughs) of it. I mean, it's not, it's, you can be, you can say I'm in X suburb, but now if you're a three kilometre walk from all of the facilities, well then well,
1: if that's... are on the main road. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. it's it's not what you want. That's really interesting, actually, because we've got a client buying at the moment, um, in Reservoir, right, in yeah. Melbourne, and um, you know, she was just, you know, she was to...
0: just made famous from a shooting.
1: Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, there you go. There's shootings all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Have you forgotten about next week? Darwin um, and
0: Melbourne. Mm. But
1: you know, and you know, it's a kind of inner north suburb of Melbourne, and you know, we're looking at some map, and she so just send me some examples of what you're thinking, etc. Um, and yeah, you know, she went for the nice ones, you <laughs> know, as you would Now the weatherboard and, and such like that. And then when I looked at the map where these were, these are a long way away from any public transport. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and the kind of like a, um, I don't know, like a fan, I guess, the further you go out, the further you can be away from public transport mm. because it's less scattered. And, um, you know, and there was the, when you're comparing properties, there was one property that was 600 meters from the train, 200 meters from the shop, beautiful tree lined street. Um, you know, you know, great ticked all the, and it was the same price as something more than 1.5 yeah. K away from the the train mm. and you were comparing apples and apples and they are saying, well, you know, this is obviously a much better property because of the location, even though it's the same price. And I think that's a really good point that you've got to, even when you see the suburb, you've got to go whereabouts in the suburb, is it? Because yeah. it makes a huge difference.
2: Yeah. And I think... I mean, the transport's an important one, particularly for me, I, I work in the city centre, but we do sometimes forget that not everyone actually works in the CBD. Mm. The CBD accounts for about 10% of the workforce. So particularly when you get out to those outer suburbs, you know, I live in the inner city and I, I'm, you know, like a lot of people I'm like, oh, I wouldn't go and live out in that suburb, but for some people they work out in those areas. Um, you know, they might be tradies, they don't need to travel into the city every day, so. I think that's another important thing to consider that Mm. the CBD isn't the be all and end all for a lot of people. Um, they, they don't have a need to really ever go into the city center. So they're quite happy in some of those other areas. But certainly if you are commuting to the inner city, I think being close to public transport is a very important consideration because I, you know, I don't live in Sydney or Melbourne, but I'd hate to Mm. battle traffic in, in Sydney, and Melbourne on a, on a weekday morning. Yes,
0: rotten in both cities. I think the other thing too is what people, as their kids grow older, when their kids get into high school, they start to think, oh, public transport's really important for our kids' mobility. Um, otherwise we're going to become a four-car family and, you know, who wants that? Mm. Um, and also then you become mum's taxi and dad's taxi and who wants that either? <laughs> you know, I love the fact my daughter can get on the train on her own. Um, so these are important considerations, not just for commuting to work as well. You yep. know, it's just for getting getting around generally. Now, can we talk about your pain and gain report? Yes. And so are you the are you the author of this? I am the author. Oh, hands, yeah. you know, I'm going to high five. bang on about this all the time because what I like to do, I like to remind people that in it doesn't matter what the rest of the market is doing. Every single quarter we get reminded that sort of 10% plus or minus a bit yeah. sells at a loss every single quarter in Australia. And um but there's beneath all this, I lo- I like to know whether there's there's the I guess the recent downturn in Sydney and Melbourne particularly has had much of a change on that and also just the composition of the certain sort of takeaways around what's more likely to lose money than not. I'd love to hear about that.
2: Yeah, so I'm actually working on the new report which should be out in the next week or two Um, and we are seeing now quite a big spike in the number of properties selling at a loss, more evident in the unit market. So again, that's another reason why we think it's going to start to show up more in our indices data. That weakness mm. in the in the apartment market. Uh, historically, apartments always underperform uh, houses, and I I think that's logical. You know, the the value of a house is driven by the land component. A unit has a lot less land component.
0: But also, you got that issue with new stock, typically. Uh, within the first 10 years falling in value at a much greater rate than anything else. That's a separate issue though, isn't it? That's right. But,
2: I mean, we look at, uh, I was looking yesterday across the cities at, um, based on the hold period of the resale, um, how the areas are performing yep. and particularly in Sydney, um, properties that have been bought within the last three years and then resold, uh, you know, some of, the, some of them 60 70% likely to actually sell at a loss. Mm. There's also a spike about eight or nine years ago. Um, where we're seeing quite a high share of properties uh reselling at a loss, particularly units as well.
0: Two thousand and
2: two? Uh so ten. eight two thousand and ten. Th- 2010,
0: I so <laughs> I just sort of, you know, <laughs> lost a decade.
2: Uh um, so coming out of yeah. the coming out of the GFC mm. and just people that bought just as that market turned uh post GFC stimulus. So yeah. we we're, we're seeing some weakness there as well. But um, you know, if we look at uh if we look at Perth about 45% of apartments selling at a loss. That market's been in a downturn for about 10 years. Um, and if, with
0: data like that, yeah. you know, why the hell are people still buying them for investments? You know, buy to live in is one thing, but buy as an investment when you've got this sort of history
2: I know, yeah, of that.
0: Yeah. It's just mind-boggling. But, yeah, yeah. sorry. No, that, just, that's all right.
2: Yeah. Um, um, in Melbourne, we've seen the share of units reselling at a loss from memory up to about 15 or 16%. Can't remember the figure for Sydney, but it is lifting quite mm. dramatically. Mm. Brisbane, you're getting about a quarter of uh, apartments reselling uh, at a loss. So wow. the apartment market's certainly doing it tough, but don't don't underestimate what we're seeing in houses. Even in, in Sydney and yep. Melbourne, the share of resales at a loss for houses are also climbing quite rapidly. They're not anywhere near as bad as the apartments and they're coming off a very low base. But they're, they're... And they've
1: got a renovation cost that, you know, probably aren't factored in, you know, so they might've yep. spent 50 grand on the house that has meant that it, on paper, it still looks like a gain. Um, but it really, you know, they bought it at 1 1, they sold it at 1 2. Well, they spent 60 grand on a Renault. So that wouldn't have been yeah. factored in. And no, it, it isn't. And the holding costs aren't factored yeah, in as or well. Stamp so, duty or anything exactly. Like that. So, so, so if you the, want picture,
2: to, the yeah. picture's actually mm, worse than what yeah. that indicates.
1: And so, have you thought about, you know, pain and gain report on steroids, I guess, <laughs> you know, and if you really want to represent how much is at a loss, adding in, you know, just stamp duty and adding in selling costs or adding in, you know, a little bit of a maintenance cost or, you know, I know this data is, you know, it's very hard. It's easy to do a broad stroke. but
0: It would be really interesting actually because, you you know, we're just guessing at what those numbers are but you could actually, you've got the actual data of the sale prices, you could do a, uh, you know, a calculation based on known, you know, yep. stamp duties, uh, etc.
2: We we have thought about it, um, mm. but we haven't gone down that path oh, at the moment. Shatter ulti- people. <laughs> it, ulti- ultimately, what we would like to do is know the actual LVR <laughs> that these properties are purchased at to see yeah. who's underwater or not. But mm. unfortunately, we have to go to our friends at the banks to get that information, and they're not too forthcoming with uh, sharing that information. And mm. that goes
0: back to what you you know your answer to our first question, which which is what's one of the things that alarms you the most is that people just automatically assume properties double in value every seven to ten years. When you've got real data, real understanding about the risks of buying property and the very fact is that once you've bought it, and you know, you might actually have negative equity um, but you don't worry about that because until you go to sell it, it doesn't matter. Um, I think the conversation around property needs to get a lot more serious because of the risk and the money and, and the commitment involved. So that's one of the reasons why I love this report. So so um, with this, though, when you talk about the spike, and this is a bit of a problem, though, with the the fact that all your data, all your uh, apartment data is amalgamated into one yep. lot. You know, pulling it apart is a challenge, right?
2: That That is. So separating out townhouses and apartments is, is very much a challenge. But, I mean, we can get some trends by looking at the suburbs where we're seeing a high portion of loss, and it's certainly... Uh, when you do that, I haven't done that with the new data yet, but the last few times I've done it, it's very much inner city areas yeah. where you are seeing the new apartment projects coming on mm. that we are seeing very high
1: uh, levels of resales at a loss. So, And a lot of people are reselling is because they're usually investors, right? And, it's, you know, they can't afford to go P&I or, you know, they want to buy a house and they've got their money tied up or there's lots of reasons why. But homeowners so much, you know, they end up deciding just to stay. And this is the big problem, I think, that, You know, the people who are bought in these apartments, you know, because they couldn't afford a house and they were pushed in or they just thought, I'll buy an apartment. They buy in the apartment, they make it work. They're the ones who most likely aren't going to go through the settlement risk because they end up borrowing every dollar from their family and getting in, but then they can't resell because the value of the property is now in negative equity and they end up just living there. They become trapped in the property, but investors just say, I'll take the loss.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean... As I said, I live in Brisbane, I live in an apartment. You look at the inner city Brisbane market, Mm. it's gone nowhere for about 12 years. Mm. The person that bought my property, I bought it and it may have gone down a little bit in price, but God, the price that they paid for initially, I would think it's going to be another 15, 20 years till it gets anywhere near that price again. So, um, you know,
0: there's- As in you sold? Recently or you bought off somebody? Uh, yeah. So are you, they're a statistic in your pain and gain report as well? They would be. Lost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: It's interesting now because you mentioned time there and this is the other thing with costs and loss. Mm. The biggest thing is opportunity cost, and that's time. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I really reflect on a, a client who uh, is a good family friend actually and, um, you know, and, you know, didn't know what he was doing, went to a property investor expo. Um, Educational and um, seminar. You know, I realised at a stage of life, you know, low home equity and, you know, could could invest and then went to an expo and then got sold to a service department. And, um, oh. you know, and it was in an area where, uh, you know, it's just not a great investment, just mm. full stop. But that could have been an apartment. It, it doesn't really matter. But that <laughs> yeah. apartment, it, service department, ended up selling it for a hundred grand loss. Yep. Um, you know, 10 years later. Ooh. It was even 11 years. And, you know, it just was a... Exercise, you know that was in you know just south of Sydney. Yep. Um. You know, we, I kind of didn't want to, not to show it to him, but I just had a bit of a quick look on your software, which is yep. this is the <laughs> power of using the software. Uh, what a house he could have bought at the same oh, time yeah. in that suburb. Um, just out was just a bit close by, and the houses were selling at a similar price. And um, that house had doubled. Yep. So not only did he lost a hundred grand. And the negative gearing, because even though it was a service department, it was still running a loss. Yep. Mm. Um, over 11 years, he actually lost all the growth of what he could have yeah. bought on that money. And then you think, well, okay, so that's 500 grand on the gains he could have made, plus it's 100 grand that he made in loss, plus it's the negative gearing, so that's 700 grand. Yep. But it's even more than that. And because if he then kept that property, because he would have, while well, he sold the service department, he would have kept the house now. Yes all the way through to Mm. retirement and for another 20 or 30 years. So he's now lost all the future gains. And so I think people kind of assume and go, well, I lost a little bit on that apartment. Well, you know, you've actually lost a lot more than that when you start adding up all these costs. And I think, I don't think many people do that. (laughs) No, and and it's
2: surprising that people don't do that, given that buying a property is the biggest investment decision most people will ever make. And I think... People do tend to take that a little bit lightly. Mm. Um, you know, I want to be in this suburb. I'll buy a property in this suburb. It's going to increase in, in value, but it's not always as simple as that. And, you know, if you bought an apartment in Brisbane 10 years ago, well, then you've, you've made a big
1: loss on that property. What's happening in Brisbane? Because we've got lots of guests in Sydney. We're going to Melbourne again soon and we'll do lots of being up to Brisbane, but yeah. and we haven't got as many kind of people from Brisbane in the studio. So I'd love to know, you know, the multiple elements of Brisbane, where's going really well, where's a really strong demand, where there's potentially oversupply, what's happening?
2: Yeah, the, the apartment market is obviously the area that's probably been the focus of oversupply and there probably is still a bit of oversupply in that market. It is moderating because a lot of the projects have come to completion and there's not a lot of new projects kicking off. Um, but it, it. I think there's, there'll probably be some decent buying in that market within the next 12 or 18 months as we come to the end of that new supply coming online. Prices have come back a long way, Uh, particularly if you start comparing it to Sydney and Melbourne, it it is very cheap. Uh, The area of Brisbane that's probably doing the strongest is the Western suburbs. Um, So for any listeners, you know, Indrapilly, Chapel Hill, uh, out that way, Fig Tree Pocket, those are the areas where we're seeing uh, the growth.
1: Much, um, what's the median price there?
2: Oh, you know, uh, look, Intrapilly would be probably about seven fifty, eight hundred thousand dollars 800000 As you go a bit further out, it gets a little bit cheaper, but that, that's, uh, that's the area that's doing, uh, the best at the moment.
0: And why do you think that is?
2: I don't really know. To be honest, I've, I've been scratching my head. There, there's a little bit of infrastructure expenditure there. Um, you've got big blocks usually, um, you know, leafy outlook, um, down by the river, um, I think that's, that's probably why, uh, it's still fairly close to the city as well, but the the challenge in there is just the roads are actually pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no, there's, there, there is a freeway, the Centenary motorway, um, but there's no train line really through that area. So that, that, that's still the challenge. Um, the inner North is doing all right as well. Um, that's the most expensive area of the city. The suburbs like? Uh, Wilston, Windsor, uh, uh, Paddington. Paddington's, that kind of I always get area. confused
0: yeah. with, with Brizzy because that river snakes. It does, you know? yeah. And so, so I'm just confused as to what yeah. direction I'm even in when I'm in Brisbane. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, easy in Sydney and Melbourne. It <laughs> is, yeah.
2: We need a straighter river. Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and I think that's being driven by people that are actually migrating up to Brisbane. I mean, the, the most expensive suburbs in Brisbane, you're talking about a median of no, 1.1, 1. 1, 1. Mm. 1.2 million. So what you Plus get. Your,
0: your Sydney side who goes, yeah. oh, it's great value, I get so much house. Yeah, that's right.
2: So, you know, for 1.2 million in Sydney, you're mm. living 20Ks out of the city.
1: For 1.2 million in Brisbane, you're living 4Ks from the city. Yeah. Um, Interesting but, though, because the interstate buyers are having a big impact up there, not only from a, a home buyer point of view, but also an investor point of view. You know, they're shopping with potentially bigger budgets and they're competing with the first home buyers up there and they're thinking about, well, what worked in Sydney and Melbourne was buying four or five k's from the city housing yep. and so they're kind of buying in these mm. inner north, in the inner west, yep. you know, Balmoral around the river, because they know that's where the best growth is.
2: They, they do. And, and they've seen it happen in Sydney and Melbourne. You know, Brisbane's a, a growing city, but it is still a lot cheaper. And, and I think those are the desirable areas. Um, So that's where it's doing quite strong. There's still quite a lot of new development going out uh, around places like Springfield, uh, North Lake. So there is a lot of new housing coming online. I mean, Brisbane's certainly not restricted in terms of new housing like Sydney is. Um, There's plenty of places to to put lots of new housing. The Ripley Valley uh, out past Ipswich, um, there's a lot of new housing going on in there. Mm. And uh, there's talk about extending the uh, train line through to there. Um, So... Um, that's, that's a, a good, fairly affordable area for people that don't need to work in the city. And even if you do need to work into the city, you are, you are going to be able to commute in, uh, via train pretty soon, but the Brisbane market's just really plugging along pretty slowly. You know, it, it's fallen a little bit over the last 12 months, not to the magnitude we've seen in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, you know, it's like anywhere, the challenge at the moment is actually getting finance. Um, I think, uh, we did see a, a little bit of a bump uh, in Southeast Queensland, more so the Golden Sunshine Coast, uh, when Sydney and Melbourne were really booming, people were using their equity in their properties in Sydney and Melbourne yep. and going and buying in those areas. That certainly seems to have, uh, slowed down quite a lot, uh, at the moment, you know, Golden Sunshine Coast, are actually more expensive to buy property than, than Brisbane. So, uh, yeah. and, and we are seeing that migration level pick up, but I, I think Brisbane Adelaide, Perth, all of these markets have the same challenge that you've still got very high unemployment rates. The labor market's not really tightening very quickly. And from a a career perspective, you don't have the same opportunities Mm. as you do in Sydney and Melbourne. And I was talking with with some um, people in finance in Brisbane about this the other week, and they were saying, yeah, for me, I've got a good job here, but if I want to go up to the next level, I need to move to Sydney or Melbourne for that job. So, and I think. That's always going to be the case unless the governments of those states can find ways to actually attract people, attract big businesses yep. out of Sydney and Melbourne. And I don't know how they effectively do that because you've got talent pools of 5 million people in both of those cities versus just over 2 million in Brisbane, just under 2 million in Perth, Yeah, you know, just a, about 1.5 million in Adelaide.
0: Yeah, and you've also got where do the people that are that talented want to go and they want to go where there's big knowledge centre existing rather than being you know, going to an outlier. So you've got all those sort of other factors involved. I guess there's a bit of a danger too because anecdotally I've, I've heard in the last, say, two years um, of a lot of people saying, oh, right, well, Sydney and Melbourne have done, they're, they're kaput. And I love how people think that's it forever. <laughs> Just does make me laugh. I'm getting out. It's done. I it was what? <laughs> this two will pass, you know. Oh, I'm gonna go to Brisbane because that that's it. That's it now. Sydney Melbourne never ever ever gonna yep. do well. Let's go to Brisbane. So then you've got this affordability chase, which has obviously been been something that's happening throughout the boom. Oh, yep. I'm gonna go and buy in Brisbane or Newcastle, two big, big places. And Adelaide's popped up on the radar. It's affordable. And I keep saying why are you chasing affordability when you're chasing an investment? Because at the end of the day, you, you want to be chasing gains, you know, growth and all that sort of stuff. Affordability, whether you can get a two bedroom apartment there for the same price as a one bedroom in Sydney, that doesn't matter, yep. you know, if it's not going to do its job. But what I have heard anecdotally is there's been quite a bit of money going to Brisbane for houses in, say, the last 18 months to two years. So is that thing artificially inflating Brisbane's prices?
2: A little bit. I mean, you look at the growth in, in house prices, it hasn't been particularly strong. So I don't know that it's enough to actually artificially inflate it. But mm. I think if, 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 you're in, if you're living in Sydney and you're at a point where you actually need to upgrade into a property and you've got a, if you work for a business that's going to let you do your job from Brisbane, you know, maybe travel down to Sydney two days a week, yep. work from Brisbane for three days a week. I mean, you sell out of Sydney Say you're in your mid thirties, you sell out of Sydney, you know, maybe 1.5, 1.6 million. Mm. You go and buy in Brisbane, you can buy in a probably much superior area, spend about a million, 1.2 million. If, if you've, if you've got that flexibility in your job, you've pretty much set yourself up, Mm. uh, pretty well for, for the rest of your life. You're going to have a low LVR on your mortgage. Yeah. Um, you're going to be living in a nice area and you've got a and you're working for someone that's going to give you that flexibility. And I think. The only way that the other cities are really going to fire going forward is if more employers actually start embracing that flexibility to, to have the Sydney or Melbourne
1: job, but not be located in Sydney or Melbourne. It's It's funny you say that. Yeah. Cause I think there's, um, there's two clients I've got at the moment who are moving back to Adelaide and, um, one was made a really interesting point. One's in Singapore and, um. I was like chatting to him he's like, and he was was, was quite a smart chap and he was like, oh, you know, I'm moving, moving back. And he goes, I can't move back yet because I haven't got the job. He says, I need to get the job first, even though he's been extremely successful. And he's like, I've got to wait for the job opportunity. And then once I've signed the job, then I'll move back. But I've actually got to wait for that job to come up because there's only a handful of them. He says, I can't go back and expect those jobs to come up because there's only a handful yeah. of them. But that's
0: that's common in Sydney for, Yeah, for people, you know, who've been living in, in Hong Kong or Singapore yep. or somewhere like that for some years. It's very common.
1: But there's probably still more opportunities moving around, more turnover and swapping because you've got more confidence to swap your job because there's more jobs. Whereas there there's literally only a handful. So In, people in just Adelaide. Get, yeah. So <laughs> people get the job and then they stay there for 15 years. And so he's basically saying, well, Got to wait for someone to leave that. And then I've got to get the job. And so Mm. what a lot of people in, for example, there is they only move back into a high paying job. And so it's kind of like a chicken and egg, you know, there's people just don't move back. And so it's kind of like interesting because they're only moving back and they're going back with a lot of cash and they can buy really good assets. So you really need the job growth. That's To right. create the housing yeah.
0: growth. But is he from Adelaide originally? Yeah. Yes, because I, I was about yeah. to say that when I find when I'm talking to people who are going to relocate, particularly to Brisbane, and Brisbane's a big one here, if they originally came from Brisbane so they're going back to family networks and all the rest of it, that's a bit of a no-brainer yep. and they'll look for those opportunities. If they're English, for argument's sake, or Indian or Chinese or whatever, and they've moved here and they don't have those established family networks then don't necessarily have you know any real ties in Sydney or Melbourne? For argument's sake, they're going to be more likely to go there because I can just see the benefit of you know they've already gone from one country to another. Yeah, what's well, the move? Know, yeah, it's another thousand kilometres you know, up yeah, the it's road. Yeah, an hour and a half flight. Um, but for someone to move up there and let go of all their family ties and. You know, that, that chase for affordability and, and, and flexibility of work and, and having no mortgage and all the rest of it, that, that comes with a lot more consequences, doesn't it?
2: It does. And I mean, I've spoken to people in Sydney and, you know, it's easy to say, well, why didn't you move to Brisbane? And people have said to me, they'd thought about it, but you've got to leave your family behind. You know, if you want to have a, if you want to have kids, there's no family network to support you mm-hmm. when you're, when you're up in Brisbane. So I think that's, that's a popular one, you know, just move somewhere more affordable. It's not really that easy and, you know, childcare is expensive, um, and, and people do increasingly lean on their, their family to help them with that kind of stuff. And if you're, if you're living away from them, I mean, I've, my wife is from Canada. So we, my parents are in Brisbane and we've got help there, but you know, she's got no support Mm. from her side of the family whatsoever.
0: Mm. So no job opportunities coming up in, in. Sydney or Melbourne are going to entice you out of Brisbane?
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Who knows? But, and, and the other challenge is the cost of living in a, in a market like Brisbane or Adelaide. Mm. If you've got a decent job there, there has to be a pretty big incentive to move away from Sydney or Melbourne because, mm. you know, the wage difference between Brisbane and Sydney is about 15%, but the price difference is, what, 60 or 70% difference mm. in terms yep. of a house. So there has to be a, a pretty big lure there to, to make you... Consider doing that.
0: Yeah. So if that closes, the incentive's gone.
1: That's right. Mm. And I think what's happened now is that, you know, Sydney has become more affordable over the last two years. There's hope again for first home buyers. Whereas if I reflect on conversations just three years ago, Brisbane was coming up almost daily with clients. Um, and, you know, and there's a client right now, she's from Brisbane. He doesn't want to really move there, but, you know, they're looking at what they can get for their money out there. And they're thinking about it now, but they're still thinking about Sydney. If I reckon that was two years ago, they'd be moving to Brisbane. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, but I think there's a, you know, if we fast forward say three or four years time, you know those those pockets that the young families are thinking about now will probably do all right, and the Brisbane will come back on the conversation again. So, you know, I think long term, I do think there'll be a bit of a, you know, a push for people going up to Brisbane just because of affordability.
2: Yeah, and I think livability as well. I mean. Honestly, I travel to Sydney and Melbourne quite often, and I hate trying to get around the roads. Like it's just—I oh, mean, do I, suck. I don't like—I tra- don't like traffic at the best of times. Well, but you,
0: Brisbane has not a fantastic No, it's, it's it's pretty bad as well. <laughs> yeah. But
2: I mean, I, you know, you come in, you come into the airport, you try and get out to Homebush. You you are flying at nine, and mm. it takes you an hour and a half in a cab to get out to Homebush. Yeah, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going against—I'm tra- theoretically going against traffic, yeah. but it's
1: taking me this long to get around the city. So, um, what are we going to Homebush for? Oh, presentation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, um, the only other <laughs> final thing, sorry, is to, um, talk about is around the greenfields. We talked about apartments, talked about townhouses. What's your experience of greenfields and, you know, the, you know, when it goes well, when it doesn't go well, and some of your data shows when it doesn't.
2: Yeah, Greenfield's probably not something we focus on too much um, just because the data is quite lagged. Again, it's it's
1: kind of like the apartment market. That
0: Can you just explain exactly what you mean by Greenfields?
1: Oh, sorry. Well, Greenfields, a, in reality it was a farm yeah. and then the farm became close to the city and then the farmer thought, oh, hang on a sec, I no longer should sell it and, you know, have cattle. I'm a
0: billionaire because mm-hmm. i um, just had a rezoning. <laughs>
1: And I can sell it to seventy million to Stockland, mm. or I can sell it <laughs> yeah. to you know etc. Okay. Um, and so you know these these are these were green fields. Now they're
2: literally yeah. lots
1: of uh, houses. Yeah, I, and as I said, we don't have a
2: huge amount of data on it because it's got that time lag, uh, and overall, it's a pretty small portion of the market. Mm. But you know, talking to some people, um, the the challenge. W- with Greenfield ultimately is the price. I mean, particularly in Sydney, I mean, vacant lands about $450,000 and that's on the outskirts of the city. And then you plop a house on that. It's another $250,000. Um, the first home buyer stimulus that's been bought in, in New South Wales and Victoria seems to have supported that market reasonably well. Um, but I think again, the, the big challenge at the moment is actually getting access to finance to go and take out, uh, take out a loan on those properties. And I think. There's been a, quite a few stories in the press about, um, you know, there's some of these developers having to drop, uh, big discounts. And I think that's probably scaring people off a little bit as well. And I think it's scaring the lenders off as well that, mm. um, you know, there's, there's a reluctance to, to go and lend to that product at the moment. So, um, yeah, you know, I think particularly in Sydney, there's not a lot of land left. So I, I still think longer term that that Greenfield stuff, uh, stock will do reasonably well of a different story in markets like Melbourne and Brisbane, where you've got, you know, you don't have the geographic constraints that you do in, uh, in Sydney, you know, you can keep doing urban sprawl mm. as
1: far as the eye can see. Um, you'd be, it'd be a bit surprised. I think if you go for a drive out and towards kind of Penrith, and then you kind of go south and north, there is actually, you know, lots of land. I think it, it feels like because we've gone.
0: But there is a mountain that's going to stop you ultimately. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, if
1: if you go directly straight to Penrith, yes. Yeah. But then if you go north and south, up towards yeah. Richmond to the north, um, there's still lots of land. If you go south, maybe towards like Campbelltown and Liverpool, yep. there is still a hell of a lot of land. And you can very easily do this because if you go onto Google Maps and look at a satellite, yeah. you can just see it. And yeah. um, I think uh, you're right. The The builders are offering huge discounts. You're talking... um. You know, before it was like we'll give you a free kitchen. Yeah. Now it's like we'll pay your mortgage for a year yeah. or we will, you know, give you sixty thousand dollars off the build, you know. Yeah. Um and it, you have to think why how can they afford to do that? And the reason they can afford to do it is in the boom, they were basically making huge fat margins. And so they were selling a house of three hundred, which would, you know, really they should have sold for two fifty. Yep. Um, and now they have to sell it for two fifty because there's no one else buying them. Uh, and that's the same for the land. Now they're dropping the land prices as well because they can't sell the land. So I think that, you know, there's lots of, um, problems cause that data, yeah. when they start, you know, three years time, yeah. will start showing that.
2: Well, we are starting to see in Sydney that land prices is dropping off, but you've got the other challenge that so many people have been hunting for those, mm. those uh, sites that they've paid overs for those properties and now they, they have to bring it to the market at a certain price or they have to sell it. So I think it'll be interesting over the next few years to see, um, Again, I think a lot of these foreign buyers that have come up and optioned these lands may be selling them, uh, off to some local developers that are going to grab that, but ultimately a lot of the land is controlled by a few larger developers and you know, they can really control supply in some yeah. of those areas. So, um, In
0: fact, I was talking to, I won't give away the suburb, but my accountant lives out in a place that I've never been to and there is no train line. Right. And, um. He sold his house because he wanted a bigger family home and he was saying that there's there's a, a very, very wealthy um, family developer that owns a lot of land out there and they're just not dropping their prices, but they're not selling either, so that they're quite happy to hold and they're protecting you know, their prices. I wouldn't say they're protecting the values, but they're protecting the prices mm. Um, mm. By, yeah. by virtue of the fact that they don't have to sell. Now, I don't imagine there's a lot of people that are in that sort of financial position where they can afford to do that, but... That is exactly where they're at. So he's forced that if he actually wants to stay there and he wants to put a new house on a block of land, he has to pay what he knows is inflated in terms of the rest of Sydney. It's just that if he wants to be there, he's forced to do that. So it's an interesting conundrum.
2: And one of the things they could really do for housing affordability is try and and make an incentive for people to bring this land to market. So Mm. at the moment... You don't really lose out by holding this land back from the market, except that you're paying interest costs and and that sort of thing. But you know, developers can lock up huge blocks of land and then just drip feed the market to make a profit. Mm. If you start looking at ways to say, if you're going to hold this land and not bring it to the market, then there's going to be a higher tax rate or something like that, I think those are the
1: sort of things that could really start to help housing affordability. Interesting you say that because the drip feeding is exactly what they do. And so. It's
0: like the diamond market. Yeah. <laughs> and, um,
1: yeah, well, that's right. Mm. You know, what's the, what's the price of a diamond? What's whatever they want to make it? Um, and, uh, you know, and that's it's, it's so true. And that's like if you're a smart developer, you wouldn't and you've got, you know, hundreds of acres, you know, you sell acre off at a time. You know, yeah, you're not not going not, to the fire sale. You know, and um, <laughs> the problem with that is is when you buy that first acre, there's still another 99 that are going to get released. And so the price of, you know, land doesn't really go up. Because as soon as there's more demand, there's more land. And so I guess it's just interesting (laughs) for, um, you know, home buyers out in these greenfields is that unless there's a a restriction of supply, you're just going to find this is going to be a continual problem as developers just keep on releasing land.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think the Sunshine Coast is a really good test case because Stockland basically own every single parcel, every single decently sized parcel. Uh, on the sunshine mm. and I don't want to have a go at stockland but they can control the market they can mm. bring on whatever they want when it they makes want it's good
0: business sense yeah. for them to do that so
2: so and that's that's the challenge in that landmark yeah. i mean a few people have the deep pockets to to own those those big parcels of land so you've got your stocklands you've got your land leases people like
1: that mm. yeah. that uh, that control those markets very much so. it's very hard for a small time developer to play in that market because if they do try there's nothing Sto- stockland just saying okay well we'll release 100 lots um, and then just flood the market and then make yeah. them not make any money. That's right. right. Like do this, the other way, yeah. You know, there's so many things behind the scenes that people just don't understand that, you know, you're kind of at the mercy of, you know, things out of your control. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Cameron, can you give us an example of a property Dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. I do. It's actually one of my property Dumbo's. We always love those. Well,
0: they're the best. And
2: and I think it it comes back to actually doing your research about uh, a property. So my property Dumbo was when I bought my previous house, I didn't spend enough time uh, sitting at the house before I purchased it, and increasingly <laughs> the air traffic to Brisbane Airport has grown and grown and grown, and the uh, didn't check the the flight uh, paths, and the flight path moved to yeah. directly over my house. Wow. So my wife and I got to the point where we couldn't even really have a conversation in our house because the aircrafts are actually bringing down their landing gears right over our house. So. <laughs>
0: And were you in a Queenslander weatherboard? I was in a Queenslander
2: <laughs> and I'm the least handy man in the world. So I, I couldn't fix that. And um, so that was my property Dumbo. But you know, that I learned a, a good lesson from that, that uh, again, when you're buying a property, it's not just all about the, the suburb, it's about actually spending the time to go to the property
1: sit outside the property. I mean, but the flight pl- path changing, that wouldn't have been there when you went anyway.
2: No, I mean, we did already have planes going over there. Yeah. Um, and I think what actually happens in Brisbane Airport is they there's a few suburbs, they move it over and whoever complains the loudest, they move it to the next suburb for a while. But mm. because the traffic picked up so much and because there's only one runway, it was at night time mm. it was basically a constant stream. And, of course, mm. You don't do the open home at night time. You do it on a mid yeah. middle of the day on a Saturday. I was so about you, to say, yeah. it's
0: the half an hour that the open house is. That's yeah. the time. you got to go back at other times. That's right. Yes, yes. absolutely. So, so that's
2: the big lesson there for me. Is How long to, did you live there for? I uh, lived there for about five years. Right, yeah. so
0: you you suffered through turning up the telly every yeah. time yeah, a that's plane right. goes
2: over. <laughs> or if we were watching Netflix, having to stop Netflix while, uh, <laughs> while the plane went over.
1: It's funny, I was doing some videos yesterday and, um, it's all about out in the road and we all went over different pockets of Sydney and like in Paddington, then we went to, you know, in Surrey Hills and Clavelli, And like, and so with the videos, you've got to wait for no planes. And pretty much everywhere we went, we were getting plane noise. Like we were in Centennial. We mm. had to stop there. We went to Clavelli, We had to stop there. Yeah. And so it's surprising how much is actually affecting. And it's obviously different levels of plane noise. Um, and you know, the, and the plane routes do change and new yep. runways get built. And well,
0: you've got prevailing winds as well. Exactly. It's uh, different yeah. times of the year. You'll find different flight paths affect different, different locations.
1: And different times of the day, mm. you know, yep. the planes, you know, you don't really care if it's at two o'clock, if the planes come over, but no. it's 6.05 when the one's coming from London, you know, and that's <laughs> exactly. going over there Well, there's a house. couple
0: apparently that can actually come in before 6am in Sydney. I think BA has got mm, like two yes. flights or something anyway. Okay. No,
1: very <laughs> interesting. I like that one because it's, um, and you're right. I think the. You know, people do go. Uh, you know, at the right time that suits the seller. Yeah. Um, which is when the, it's the beautiful sunset, or <laughs> you know, it's great lighting, or the snow school run. The, or, the
0: lighting is a cl- yeah. The yep. parking and school run, they're, they're classics. You know, mm. the the old idea about you know when when the house has got more natural light, yep. and you you definitely know that agents will deliberately uh, set a time around that. But also with the flight paths, it's quite perverse It's because yeah. uh, I remember when I was a selling agent, you had people that were selling under the flight path and they said, oh, we want to make sure that, you know, we avoid the flight path. And I'm like, well, you can't control the wind. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Murphy's Law will be that you have the auction at a certain time and it will be that time when there's more planes than any other time. It's just potluck.
2: But it'll be so. interesting with Badgeries Creek in Sydney because people out in those suburbs have never had to really – Although the the flight path was never a consideration for mm. them, but it is going to become a consideration for them. Going and that's forward. more
1: of a transport airport, yeah. right? That's more of a, um, this is not people. these are
0: they got the cargo. We're, yeah, we're, yeah.
1: We're, this is more around our kind of how do we get our stuff to the world. And, yeah. you know, that's most likely going to be more of a 24-7, I'm pretty sure, like airport so. as well. And so, you know, at 3 a.m. Yeah. And so these, I don't think we're going electric planes <laughs> anytime soon <No>. uh, <laughs> to get rid of the noise. Um, it's interesting though. When you say about the flight plan, though, like when you're going to open homes, you know there's something wrong when the music's on. I think. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, put candles. that's fine, but when you go in there, and I don't know the,
0: what a candles masking. Yeah, oh. that's true as well. But
1: um, you know, there's the music's going off in the kitchen uh, on the back deck. Uh, I just kind of want to go in there and just turn the music off, and as a bit yeah. of a stunt, just to <laughs> play around with the real estate agent because. Um,
0: once Turn you do- the lights off. That's yeah. what you really need to do. You yeah. go through, you really annoy them. Turn the lights <laughs> off and it's in a cave. And, oh. they've no, got natural s- light. Yeah. Cameron, thank you so much for coming and joining us. That's been very informative. Um, I hope that you've um, had an opportunity to express some things that maybe you wouldn't normally express in a podcast. <laughs> we tried to trap you a couple of times and you wouldn't bite. <laughs> we really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Cameron. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is?
0: Let's talk a bit about settlement risk. And this doesn't just apply to brand new property. It applies to any property that you might buy. And then you might think that if you need to walk away from it, God forbid, that you are only going to lose the 10% deposit. Now, this is a absolute myth. And a lot of people think, now let's face it, 10%, you know, it's nothing to be sneezed at. If you are a million dollars, that's a that's hundred thousand dollars. Who wants to lose that? But some people think that if you get into, you've signed a contract on a property, it's gone unconditional, you've bought at auction and for whatever reason, um, you can't complete on that sale or you can't settle then, well, that's all right. I'll just have to walk away from my 10%. Well, it's not that simple. Okay. We actually did an episode ages ago, I kind of remember the number, it was probably in the first 10, maybe 11 or something like that, which was Australia's biggest property dumbo and actually we took you through a case study of a situation where a couple, a very well known couple actually bought a property and didn't complete and what happened. And what can happen is if that property sells at less than what you agreed to pay for it, you're not just up for your 10%, they can sue you for the difference and costs and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I this Elephant Rider Bootcamp is really about really understanding what you are committing to when you buy a property. You are committing to buy that property at that price within the time period or at the end of the settlement period, usually six weeks in, in uh, New South Wales. It can vary. It can go from 28 days up to six months sometimes. But whatever is the settlement period that is agreed, whatever the price is agreed, that's what you're signing the liability to come up with the rest of the money by that date and take ownership of that property, and you do need to understand, and, and it's a it is a myth that a lot of people just do not realise that you can be sued for a lot more than that ten percent. Should that owner be losing money? Now it could be, and, and certainly with developers, you know, if they're going to be forced with the prospect of going broke because a whole bunch of the people that they sold properties or apartments to off the plan can't settle, then you can bet your bottom dollar they're going to go and fight not to go broke. So there'll, you know, quite likely be a lot of legal action of people being sued for all the other losses because they are not completing on the sale. So very, very important lesson there. Please join us for our next episode when we interview Andrew Price. He's a managing partner of EY Sydney and he's a co-author of a very interesting report which goes back to 1994 and we tackle the big question of is renting better than buying? Now it's an insightful conversation and we really look at some of the big issues and the individual need or a home, but we also talk about policy changes that need to be looked at by governments because we are, as a society, changing.
1: Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter.
0: Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you.
1: Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you.
0: The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher.
1: Until next week, don't be a dumbo.
0: Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.